0: You're listening to Rights Up, the podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Today's episode is the second of three book talks about comparative human rights law, a new book by Professor Sandy Fredman, published by Oxford University Press. In this episode, Sandy talks with Justice Moralidar of the High Court of Delhi in India. This is a special episode of Rights Up, where Sandy Fredman will be discussing her new book, Comparative Human Rights Law, with Justice Moraladar of the High Court of Delhi in India. Comparative Human Rights Law explores how lawyers, courts, and judges forward human rights in different contexts, drawing on specific examples from different jurisdictions on issues such as capital punishment, abortion, the right to housing, health, and education, and the right to freedom of speech and religion. In this talk, Sandy will be discussing socioeconomic rights and specifically the right to housing with Justice Moraladar, who has decades of experience litigating as a lawyer in Indian courts and now serving as a judge in the high court, delivering decisions in some very important cases on housing rights in India. Sandy's book, Comparative Human Rights Law, is available from Oxford University Press. This conversation was recorded in India with help from the National Law University in Delhi and the team behind the Project 39A podcast, which you can find at www.project39a.com.
1: Thank you very much, Justice Moralido, for joining me in this conversation about my book, Comparative Human Rights Law. We will be talking particularly about two chapters in the book. The one... Chapter 3, which challenges the divide between socioeconomic rights and civil and political rights and the other, which is Chapter 7, which is on the right to housing. So perhaps we could start with you sharing some of your own experience since you've been a judge on the Delhi High Court since 2006 and before that you were in practice for I think at least 20 years. I wonder whether you could share some of your personal experience in order to tell us why you are interested in human rights law and why you're particularly interested in social and economic rights, which we're going to be talking about. Uh,
2: Thank you, Professor Fredman. Thank you for this opportunity uh, of discussing your book, at least two chapters of your book, which I found fascinating. I started my practice in Madras, in Chennai, as it's now called, which is the south of the country, in 1984. And uh, I had absolutely no orientation in either human rights law, or even you know uh, civil liberties law. And I started in the trial courts. So I was a first-generation lawyer, and uh, looking to see if I can uh, you know, find my way into the profession. I remember the only incident I remember which perhaps told me something about myself, was that I joined a kind of protest when the Bhopal gas tragedy happened in December 1984. I don't know why I was drawn to that protest, but I was drawn to it. And many years later, when I was representing the victims of the Bhopal gas tragedy, it told me that there was something within me that drew me to these instances of gross injustice. But uh, in practice otherwise, I moved from Chennai to Delhi, in 1987, that is 32 years ago. And even in Delhi, I began working with a government lawyer, a senior government lawyer. He was the additional Solicitor General of India at that time. So largely, I did cases from the perspective of the government of India. But it did give me an insight into the workings of the government and the points of conflict. And it helped me understand how the Supreme Court views things. And so, one of the earliest cases was uh, about mentally ill people in jails in West Bengal. The case goes by the name of Sheila Barsi versus Union of India. And uh, Sheila Barsi is a journalist who happened to be visiting one of the largest jails in uh, Calcutta, the Presidency Jail, where she noticed among other prisoners, including children, there were people who were labeled as non criminal lunatics. And they were perfectly fine, they were having a, you know, easy conversation with her. She wrote a letter to the Chief Justice of India, which was in its epistolary jurisdiction, part of the public interest litigation jurisprudence that you've discussed so extensively in your book, that was converted into a writ petition. And the Supreme Court Legal Aid Committee was asked to represent her in the court. And that's how I came into the picture, because I helped prepare the draft of that petition for the lawyer who was assigned that work who later on became a judge of the Delhi High Court, Justice Mukul Mudgal, and went on to become a chief justice of the Punjab and Harena High Court. So my journey into the human rights law was essentially through legal aid.
1: Thank you very much. And obviously your journey since then has been um, a, a, a very interesting one where you've given some really fascinating judgments. But what I notice is that you, especially in your recent judgments, do draw on comparative In other words, you use judgments from other jurisdictions, and especially the South African court. And I wonder why you use them and whether you think what you think they bring to your judgment using judgments from other courts.
2: Yeah, I think this goes back to again where we uh, where I stopped earlier. Uh, In the Sheila Barse case, we were able to establish a principle. And uh, I ended up arguing the case in the Supreme Court. We established a principle that uh, jailing of uh, mentally ill persons is unconstitutional. And that brought about a sea change in the way they approached this whole issue. It's not that the issue has vanished. Even now, as a judge in the Delhi High Court, I've had to deal with a similar kind of an issue. Uh, but it helped me get into the human rights law more frankly. I went on, while I was doing practicing law, to do on my masters in law. And in my master's, I picked up the right to housing for my dissertation. And because by then I was already uh, witnessing a large scale demolitions that were happening in Delhi. And uh, when you live in apartments in Delhi, you can't be oblivious to what is happening around you. Most of the slum clusters are located next to these apartments. And I also began handling cases for slum dwellers, one very close to the Supreme Court at the... uh, almost just a kilometre away from the Supreme Court. They were on railway land, and there is a special law that enables railway officers to determine whether somebody is unlawfully occupying railway land. And I used to go and appear as a lawyer before that railway officer. And every hearing, before every hearing, I would go to the slum cluster, sit with the uh, you know, residents there, discuss the cases, and uh, some of them were Tamil-speaking, and I was Tamil-speaking, so it helped. And after a hearing, would come back to the slum cluster, discuss with them. So I also got a perspective of how people view the Supreme Court, people view the courts generally, and this whole legal process. So that fascinated me. Now, the legal aid uh, work that I did in the Supreme Court attracted one of the professors in the Delhi University, Professor M.P. Singh, who insisted that I do a PhD, uh, seeing my work in the court. So as part of that, I visited South Africa in 1998 uh, and I visited England too just to see the legal aid programs in both uh, countries and I think 1998 was a very vibrant time in South Africa and I was fascinated by the jurisprudence coming out from the Constitutional Court of South Africa. And I think the Makwanyane case had just come, the death penalty case. So uh, I got very interested in the way jurisprudence was evolving in South Africa. So it was an introduction to the international human rights law and the international human rights law, which figured in the South African constitution, and uh, the whole concept of the right to adequate housing was uh, frankly placed there.
1: Just to take that forward, um, a lot of my book is obviously about comparative human rights law, and it's about the extent to which you can look at another jurisdiction and learn something from it, or even transplant parts of it into a different jurisdiction. And the book also signals some of the risks of that. So the the social, constitutional, and legal context in which what was happening in South Africa at the time uh, could have been very different from or very similar to the Indian context, and certainly would have been very different to the English context that you saw. And and in that sense, um, what I traced trace in my book is the way in which different courts have had the same questions presented to them, but often produced quite different answers. Particularly in South Africa and India, this problem of, of homelessness, of lack of adequate housing, of people being evicted in the circumstances that you describe, is very prevalent. So the courts are faced with the same question of, is there a constitutional human right which can address their particular social situation, the fact that they are extremely poor, are being deprived of their homes. And coming back to to your experience, did you feel that what was happening in South Africa was similar enough, or was there enough in the two constitutions which could be uh, brought together? Or do you see some important divergences between both the contexts and the co- constitutions?
2: Yeah. In terms of uh, divergences, I think the Indian constitution being an older constitution and not actually spilling out the right to housing, uh, we've had to depend on Supreme Court judgments to uh, fall back on. Whereas in the South African constitution, there was a learning from the, international covenants. And uh, so it was easier to develop it from that jurisprudence which had already you know, kind of been expostulated elsewhere. Uh, the second issue is about uh, the Indian court's judgments. You will find uh, except in the early 90s, judgments of the early 90s and one or two of them, there's almost no reference to the international covenant on economic and social rights. So that linkage Uh, that India ratified that covenant, and that it is binding on India to the extent that there's no uh, contradictory law in India. That linkage was somehow not made in some of the early judgments. But uh, that is the only, uh, I would say, a a difference that comes about. But there are many facets of uh, this jurisprudence, Indian jurisprudence, which can be related to the, uh, the, jurisprudence that emanated from South Africa and the earlier jurisprudence around the International Covenant. So one could see it holistically. So in my judgments, I take care to make these linkages. Like we now have, since 1993, the Protection of Human Rights Act, which defines international covenants as including the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights as well as the Economic and Social Rights. And I therefore say that because it's now part of domestic law. Uh, It's binding on Indian courts, and I make this linkage in every judgment which I've been part of Because I find this important linkage has really not been made in the Indian Supreme Court judgments It doesn't make them anything less authoritative, but it helps us see it in a larger context So you can uh, easily uh, bring in the international court uh, international law principles including those from the South African courts so it's
1: really interesting that you feel that they're easy to use because that's exactly where the South African courts have uh, actually differed to an extent from the international covenant on um, economic, social, and cultural rights in relation to the right to housing specifically, and therefore have also differed from India and from your judgments. And, and, and in, in the chapter that we're talking about on the right to housing, um, I do talk about the way in which the South African Constitutional Court has been reluctant to specify what is the content or the minimum content of the right to housing, and instead what they've uh, what they 've wanted to argue is that what the court should be doing is looking at the state's corresponding duties to take reasonable measures to achieve the right to its access to housing. Whereas, as I see it, the Indian court seems much less reluctant to look for a content to the right and to use the international covenants approach, which is to specify a minimum core. I wonder how you see those arguments playing out and how whether the argument in the book kind of resonates with you
2: yeah i i think well, your uh, description of what the south african courts has done i think uh, is by and large uh, uh, sticks to the text of these judgments the uh, proportionality approach and the reasonableness approach the indian courts i think have invariably been faced with some policy existing policy of the government which already specifies certain entitlements so even in the earliest case of olga tellis You'll find there's a discussion of the policy that was then prevalent of, uh, you know, dealing with the issue of slum dwellers. And on the same day that the judgment came out, there was another judgment from, the, from Madras. It goes by the name of K. Chandru versus the Municipal Corporation of Madras. In that case, uh, and I've quoted that in my recent judgment in the Ajay Maghan case, the Supreme Court find, found the policy to be perfectly all right it said that uh, there was no entitlement to be heard before uh, being evicted, but there was always a policy in place which could spell out some uh, degree of entitlement. So there was no hesitation in uh, finding the content of this right to housing, but only locating it in the constitutional framework. On that, the Supreme Court judgments have been very useful. And like you rightly point out, article 21, is seen as a repository of a a large number of rights, survival rights, rights to dignity, and a decent living, which is the word used in the Francis Corelli Mullen case in the Supreme Court, which is almost like a fount from where all this jurisprudence uh, of seeing economic social rights as part of the Article 21 right to life emanates. So Indian courts, I don't think, have had too much of an issue in uh, finding the content of the right to housing. Personally speaking, I found the international covenant to be very useful in that aspect. So it both gave us a procedural content and a substantive content. And I invariably used those when I was arguing cases for slum dwellers in the courts.
1: Well, I I, I think that's it, it underlines, to some extent, the differences in approaches between the South African Constitutional Court and the Indian courts because the South African court has been quite criticised for refusing really or being very cautious about determining a content to the right. Most recently when there was a, a right to water case, they refused to come to a conclusion about what the minimum amount of water the state should provide to fulfil the right. And instead they said that their role was entirely to decide whether the state was taking reasonable measures to provide water. Whereas what you're arguing is that where there is a policy, it's not the court that's creating the policy. What the court is doing is referring to the policy and checking that the state is
2: actually carrying
1: out a policy which is already in place. Always carrying it out
2: properly. What we're now looking at are the specific contents of these policies, and I would like to refer to two judgments of the Delhi High Court. One is Sudama Singh, which came out in 2010, and I was party to that, and the most recent is Ajay Markhan, which I authored. In both these judgments, we are spelling out uh, what the policy is all about. It says that you will be entitled to a plot, which is just 25 square meters or 20 square meters which is not much, and uh, that you will not be given a transferable title to that plot. We're not looking into the reasonableness of the size of the plot. But what we've done is we're saying that merely giving that plot is not enough. We'll have to see if this is adequate enough from the point of view of transport, access to livelihood, access to health, access to education, and whether all these amenities, including sanitation, are provided in that place where the plot is located, and if not, you know, to find means of, you know, looking at other areas where all these facilities would be available. So we are using a reasonableness uh, criteria, but not on the sizes of the plots yet, but to see whether, you know, all the other concomitant rights, including the political right and the right to vote, because we found that when there's mass eviction of slum dwellers, like the Yamuna river side evictions, people lost the right to vote overnight and uh, we had to petition the court and it didn't quite succeed. But the, the slum dwellers came back to vote to the area where they were registered and uh, they made sure that the, that the local member of parliament who was from that area lost. But that's another story. But it's so important for them to exercise that right to vote. So uh, we're looking at all these aspects in these judgments which is what you might find uh, interesting.
1: I I think that really reflects very much the International Covenant's approach and less the South African court's approach. Because although you're talking about reasonableness, you're actually talking about a whole constellation of substantive rights, which go together with the right to be housed. And these are the concomitant rights which are also stressed in the International Covenant. But the right to vote is particularly interesting that you highlight in the sense that, One could say that the role of the court is most important when it makes sure that people are not deprived of their opportunity to participate in the political process.
2: I just want to enter a caveat here. Uh, What I've discussed is about two judgments of the Delhi High Court. In fact, uh, Delhi High Court would not be representative of the entire Indian judiciary. So which is why you're also right in your book when you note that there's been some criticism that uh, there have been a lot of rhetorical flourishes in the judgment of the Indian Supreme Court with nothing much changing on the ground, and which has led some of the scholars frustrated in seeing how, you know, these judgments, do they make a difference or not? But uh, I think there's a learning that we need to do, and I think high courts can learn from each other. And uh, when these judgments, like Sudama Singh did travel to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court declined to interfere. Actually, the government that took the case to the Supreme Court, after a few hearings, decided to withdraw its petition in the Supreme Court. So in a sense, Sudama Singh is now a, a, a judgment that is left undisturbed. I don't know about, so much about what will happen with the Ajay Markhan judgment, but it's six months now, and uh, uh, there, I don't see any challenge to the judgment. So it is only when you know uh, groups, housing rights groups take these judgments to other areas in the country and lawyers pick up these judgments and present them as arguments in the next case that comes before the Supreme Court, will we know that whether the Supreme Court also is willing to go down the same path.
1: Would you agree with some of that criticism of the Supreme Court in cases like Olga Tellis, which has come under quite a lot of sustained criticism, on the one hand for making very strong and robust statements, about the right to life leading to the right to livelihood, the right to livelihood requiring you to be housed near where your sources of livelihood are. But then when you actually look very closely at the remedy, all they really are saying is they should have been given a right to be heard before they were evicted, rather than that they should have been given a right to be housed in the area close to
2: their livelihood. I'm reminded of uh the recent film on rbg that i saw it's a fascinating film on the life of justice ginsburg where as a lawyer her uh, principle was step by step and uh, i can share with you now with 13 years of being a judge that sometimes even judges have to strategize and uh, because they have an executive which has to ultimately implement their decisions and uh, they're looking at a larger consensus being evolved of acceptability of the court's decisions. And sometimes, of course, they are counter-majoritarian. They're supposed to be counter-majoritarian. But uh, I think there is also an anxiety to see that you don't you know, overstate something to a point where it doesn't work. So I think Olga Tellis made a very important contribution to the evol- ev- evolution of Indian jurisprudence around uh, housing rights although it did recognize only a procedural right and didn't recognize any substantive right, I think it was easy to build on that and carry it forward. So now I find that in all the rehabilitation policies, including the statute which governs Delhi, this right of consulting the slum dweller, this right to uh, hear the slum dweller's views on what is the proposed rehabilitation plan, Has gotten, I mean, it's got solidified in all the policies and the statute. And it's easy, therefore, to trace this back to uh, Olga Tellis.
1: So, can can we talk a little bit more about the procedural protection of, of the right to be housed, which has been, and I think it comes out from the chapter in my book looking at lots of different jurisdictions? It's one way in which a court feels comfortable about adjudicating on complicated policy issues. If you can say you've got a right to be heard, then the court can say we're giving you a right but we're not necessarily dictating what the outcome should be if that's something for the executive. and You mentioned that Olga Tellus while at the same time talking about quite a robust right to livelihood, also gave this opportunity for slum dwellers to be consulted before they were evicted. Some would say this is a very flimsy right. All that needs to be happened is you ask their opinion and then you do whatever you were going to do anyway. And I wonder whether you think that that's an appropriate criticism or whether you think by having the right to be spoken to and to respond, that in itself gives the opportunity to people who would not otherwise have had a voice, to influence, at least influence, the course of their own destiny in terms of where they are housed, what kind of housing, and also to some extent, harnesses in a possible political process, just through that opportunity to speak and be spoken to. Uh,
2: Let's begin with Olga Tellis itself. I think many of us perhaps have not noticed one stark fact about Olga Tellis. In Olga Tellis, the judgment came four years after the eviction actually happened. And uh, much of the judgment talks about the right of the slum dealer to have a notice before the eviction. But in the case of Olga Tellis itself, realizes that giving that right at that stage when they were delivering the judgment, which is four years later, would be a futile exercise. Because from the pleadings in the case, they found that they didn't have any explanation which would change the ultimate decision. So in a sense, therefore, Olga Tellez was like, you know, uh, a post-event kind of a judgment, which did do much for these slum dwellers. Likewise in the Madras Chandru case, which is what probed, uh, I mean, which uh, provoked me to, you know, investigating many of these decisions we are talking about, people come to the court after the event why because slum uh, eviction is always a forced eviction it happens overnight the bulldozer at your door you're scrambling to collect things and you're not looking to go to the lawyer to go to a court at that point in time you're looking to save yourself save your belongings save your family so most of the time the court is faced with a to comply which is why i would think the ajay makan case makes a huge departure because of the learning of the earlier times where uh, There was never enough time to go to the court to stop it. Here, they could somehow come the next morning to the Delhi High Court. And already, eviction was in process, but people had just stepped, I mean, they were on the road in the the vacant plot next to where they were evicted from. So we could actually order them to be put back. And that very rarely happens in any of these decisions that we are talking about. So the timing, the timing when the uh, people come to the court with this petition, uh, seeking to resist an eviction becomes very important. Otherwise, invariably, a court is faced with a of comply. Then the meaningful engagement also becomes uh, a futile exercise because it's an engagement for what can now happen to you after you've been evicted, not an engagement prior to eviction. So I would think that the engagement has to be what the South African court rightly used, the adjective meaningful.
1: But one of the criticisms of the idea of using the right, even the right to meaningfully engage as a way of fulfilling the right to be housed is that it deflects attention away from the right to provision of alternative housing. Certainly the South African cases and the, the contrasts in in the chapter are, are also drawn out, bring in much more recently the question of whether, as well as having a right to be heard, there should be a right to alternative housing when being evicted.
2: Yeah, I think this will have to take on a case-by-case basis. Uh, There is a move, in fact, in the policies uh, of the Delhi Government and the Delhi Development Authority to explore the possibility of what is called in-situ development. That is, uh, if the entire cost of finding alternative Uh, accommodation is going to be prohibitive, and it will not meet all the requirements that we've been discussing, then it's better to, you know, have an in-situ upgradation. In fact, in Ajaymakan, there were submissions made before us that we should get into the rehabilitation plan that had been put in place and uh, critique it to see if it is adequate. But we refrained from doing that because this meaningful engagement was still to take place. We said that when they offer you, if they offer you the alternative plan, and you can then come back to us to say why that is not you know, good enough for you. But right now, they've assured us that you're not going to be disturbed. So we leave this at that. You know, So uh, I think we take it as a case-by-case basis to see whether an in-situ upgradation is a better alternative to an alternative uh, you know, accommodation. And uh, I think courts have to come back to this issue whenever it arises again before them.
1: And of course that brings up one of the big differences between Indian court and many other courts, which is that you keep the door open to people coming back and you keep a kind of supervisory role. The South African court and, and obviously most other courts have have been resistant to the idea of the court having an ongoing supervisory role. The high courts in South Africa are much more tempted to do that, but the constitutional court has been a little bit reluctant. And some of the time, it is actually said in front of the South African constitutional court that we don't want to go down the road that the Indian courts have gone down, because the Indian courts have been overreaching themselves, have been criticised as being two activists have come out with judgments which cannot actually be implemented so sometimes the 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 com- the comparative learning has gone in the in the opposite direction
2: i'll go back to olga tellis here and uh, i think what is remarkable about olga tellis was again recognizing poverty as a barrier to justice to access to justice <clears throat> if that becomes the defining you know, principle on which a court should interfere, then uh, it's easy to explain the continuing mandamus. Because even if I give a judgment, saying given Delhi's homeless population, there should be at least 20 night shelters in every district in Delhi, and I give a grand judgment, and I, you know, conclude the proceedings. If, uh, If I'm true to myself, I would know that this is not going to get implemented overnight. It will not get implemented unless they're pushed to implement it, because this does mean allocation of resources, but more importantly, a will, a will to actually implement, instead of finding excuses, saying, no, we can't do this, we can't do that. So as judges, we realize that on some of these issues, if we do not keep the case with us, It's only going to multiply litigation, it's going to frustrate the people who think they've succeeded before us, only to find that the judgment is fantastic on paper, but it's not being followed by the person who is supposed to implement it. So this recognition runs throughout for us. And uh, it is not on all issues we do this. Some of the issues where we think this kind of timeline, setting down timelines for targets to be achieved is useful to push, you know, the authorities into action. So I think it's a more practical, pragmatic approach. I wouldn't see this as overreaching at all if we recognize the law and poverty dimension of this entire issue.
1: So it's really interesting that you mention the law and poverty, which has been, at least in the earlier cases of the Indian Supreme Court, very much of a guiding light. But much more recently, there's been quite a lot of criticism of the Indian courts as doing quite the opposite, as as saying that they are pro-poor and advancing the interests of the poor who can't access justice, but that the effect of what they're doing is actually often against the poor. Does that criticism resonate with you? Because it is a criticism which is very loudly voiced at the moment, I think, in India.
2: Yeah, you see, in fact, I myself have written quite extensively on this issue in my lawyer days where a large number of uh, slum eviction orders were passed by the courts at the instance of resident welfare associations, that is persons occupying apartments. Now, like I told you, I myself was in an apartment which had a, 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 you know, a slum uh, around it. So what happens is it is uh, the court which is then trying to balance two kinds of uh, you know, uh, uh, situations before it. One at the instance of petitioners who are again referring to the same master plan, and saying under the master plan, this is an encroachment. You needed lawyering on the other side to say, no, under the same master plan, you have provisions for housing for the poor. So a court had to be told that, you know, both can be seen in the framework of the so-called legality, illegality framework, but you can go even beyond it. So I wouldn't put it entirely on the court to say that it was pro-poor, anti-poor. It also is about the lawyers who argued the cases before the court and how they built on the failure. See, all cases don't end in success, but you can always build on it. So I think the better way to see it is, PIL jurisdiction itself reflects the uh, complexity of Indian society, the plurality of Indian society. There are bound to be the middle classes who want to come and you know, find their space in that jurisdiction. There are bound to be other classes which come and find their space in the jurisdiction. I don't think we should shut the door to anyone at all. We can't make this exclusively only for the poor kind of jurisdiction, because there are many cases of public accountability that have come in the PIL jurisdiction, which is very important.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that, because that's also the position that I take take in the book, largely speaking, which is that the PIL can be criticised, but there are It doesn't mean that we should get rid of the PIL, but it just means that it has to be seen in its complexity and used in the right ways.
2: There's one uh, aspect of the right to housing which I thought I should uh, bounce off against you, which has troubled me, which is the violence that accompanies a forced eviction. And I don't find the judgments discussing this violence that accompanies it. It's a violent act. You're, you know, using violence to throw out a person, and uh, what happens? The court just accepts that as a given, and uh, does not pronounce on the legality of that itself, that act of violence. And isn't that a direct infringement of a very fundamental right? I mean, it's not about the right to housing; it's about just the just right to be peaceful and secure wherever you are. Why has that not got enough attention?
1: I think that's such an interesting point, and it raises two issues. The one is coming back to this artificial divide between social rights and civil rights, and that shows that it's really an artificial divide, that the right to personal security and the right to life and the right to housing are all really connected. It's just because of particular kinds of ideologies that they've been seen as separate, here's your right to housing, here's your right to personal security. The second point is that that it also shows that the, the way in which the law has tended to protect rights to property, property rights over the rights of people who encroach on property, almost to the point of saying that in getting rid of trespasses, you don't really pay any attention to the dignity of the, the, the trespassers, who retain their right to personal security, their right to be treated with dignity, and their right not to be assaulted. But you'll be very interested in a case which has just come to the Supreme Court of Appeal in South Africa, which came recently after the book had been finished. So similar to the case that you've been talking about this case was um, unlawful occupiers on a traffic island, and obviously this was a public space which needed to be used for other causes. But they had been, they had erected their cardboard structures on the traffic island, and very similar to the sequence of events that you describe, without any notice, the police. In a concerted effort, came in and took away all their belongings and took them off the island, the traffic island, with lots of cars going all around. It wasn't a very safe place. And the traffic island was also needed for cars to be able to pull up or pass, etc. But what they did was they did it by destroying all of their their belongings, which were not worth very much, but destroying them and taking them off without any notice and without any dignity. So this was a difficult claim. They couldn't claim that they had a, a right to be there. They couldn't even claim under South Africa's very good eviction laws, because the eviction laws require you to be encroaching on empty public land or unoccupied land. So what they did do was claim under the right to personal security, and the Supreme Court of Appeal upheld their right not to have their property destroyed and not to be removed in with unnecessary force. Uh, the the other interesting point is what are their reparations? Which, again, it's after the event, and the pieces of cardboard and wood that they had used to cover themselves had no value whatsoever. In fact, they could find more of it very easily by scavenging. So the question was, was there any actual um, monetary amount that could be put? And that's again where the meaningful engagement comes in because the occupiers had said that they would be satisfied with 1500 rand, which I can't convert into rupees, but 1500 Rand is a decent amount for an occupier. They said that they would be happy with that amount. So the court awarded, asked the public body who had evicted them to give them each that amount. But I guess you would need something more as well to say, you shouldn't use these kind of tactics in the future. So would that speak to that kind of a point?
2: Yeah, I think so, somewhat. But uh, again, shaping the remedy for that kind of a violation, I think one will have to be creative about what actually happens. Uh, now I'd like to ask you something about uh, judges, because you've been watching courts, what, uh, reading their judgments. Uh, two questions actually. How much do you think an orientation of the person before he becomes a judge is very critical for cases of the kind we're talking about, or sometimes a person with no orientation at all could still give a brilliant judgment on the right to housing. Uh, Second is, do you think it would make a difference if specific to the context of uh, forced evictions, if you were able to persuade the judges hearing the case to visit the place where the forced eviction has happened and the place where the people are now Residing, would that actually make a difference, or judges are supposed to be so neutral that they don't get unnecessarily influenced by what they see, and they're supposed to sit in their chambers and sit in court and just look at photographs or video clips of what is shown to them?
1: So I think in the earlier chapters of the book, I canvassed quite a lot of the arguments about what what the place is of judges' own normative position or their own value judgments. There are a lot of cases where where courts in various jurisdictions, particularly for example Justice Scalia in the US, who will say whatever happens, a judge should not bring their personal predilections into the judgment. But the more you look at the judgments, even of Scalia itself, you see that inevitably judges' own values must and do shape their judgments. If you put some of Scalia's judgments side by side, you find that they are not necessarily uh, neutral as towards as to values. And even the the mere decision to say this is a decision for the legislature and of the court is a value judgment. It's a judgment about what is the role, the right role of the court. So I think what the comparative study shows very clearly is that in the end, judges do not leave their values at the door, as and Carl Clare has a, a very nice way of saying it, you can't just leave your values with your coat at the door, you come in with your values. Uh, and and in, in, in my view, from reading a lot of the comparative material, what's much more important is for judges to articulate those values and then def, uh, be able to defend them in a way which is acceptable to people which means that not every normative position that a judge brings into the courtroom is necessarily acceptable. It has to be a position which is in, is concords with and is coherent with the constitutional norms that the judge is is, uh, interpreting. But the constitutional norms are not self-executing. They they need to be infused with values and as long as the judge can articulate why particular values, whether this is a plausible way of giving normative force, then I think judicial accountability can be achieved uh, in a much better than hiding behind a veneer of neutrality. So that's on the first question. On the second question about judges visiting the site. It seems that, again, from, from looking at the, the comparative experience, a judge's own experience of what the issue is can be crucial in shaping the, the judge's perception, which is at the basis of a lot of this, this criticism of judges. So just to wrap up, s- since the goal of the book has been to bring a comparative perspective to human rights law. I'd like to close by asking what would be one lesson you think that we, as a global community of human rights scholars and practitioners, should learn from the example of how India has dealt with socioeconomic rights, particularly the right to housing?
2: I'm not sure of one lesson that uh, we can all learn from the experience of uh, India. But certainly this, I would like to say that courts are neither the starting points now the termini for litigating around these issues and uh, advocacy on these issues have to be at multiple fora every failure in succeeding before the court uh, does not have to stop the effort because much can be learned from such a failure and it uh, it can help influence legislators to bring about changes in statutes in the law in the policies and uh, which can help us take this whole movement forward. Thank you very much.
0: Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. Yeah.